And our text this morning is the verse 30 of Ephesians chapter 4. And there we read, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. I don't know what you feel or what you think, but sometimes I think to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could reach a place in our Christian life where sin was no longer so tempting? Wouldn't it be nice that the longer that you were a Christian, the more immunity that you build up towards sin, and so when it comes along, it just glances off you and doesn't have any effect. The truth is that even a man like David, who was described as being a man after God's own heart, that after many years of walking with God, and indeed even writing many inspired psalms of praise to him, that he succumbed to temptation of adultery and deception and murder. The wisest man that ever walked in this earth, Solomon, who had several personal encounters with God, fell into the sin of idolatry. And lest any of us should think that we have arrived at a point where certain sins no longer tempt us, I would remind you of Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Because sin appeals to us. And it comes with great power and force. And therefore we need some motivation for holy living that is stronger than our sin. Sin brings with it the promise of immediate pleasure and fulfillment. But we need to think it through and seek to answer the question why we should not sin. And the Bible does give us reasons why we should not sin. Firstly, because sin hurts us. God has designed his commandments for our blessing and for our protection, and there are built-in consequences when we violate God's law. It's a little bit like the traffic laws that you use when you drive. If you want, you can ignore those laws, you can drive fast, you can run through red lights, you can drive on the wrong side of the road in order to get to where you want to get to a little bit faster, and for a while it may actually work. You might think to yourself, that's great, I don't have to obey those restrictive laws. But sooner or later you're going to run into a truck and, well, that's not going to be much fun at all. In the same way God warns us, whatever we sow, we will reap. If we sow to the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. And every sin, even if it gives us pleasure for a little while, the Bible warns us that eventually sin will pay its wages, and the wages of sin is death. So there's a good reason not to sin. Sin hurts us. Let me give you another reason. Sin hurts other people. That's obvious when we think about sins such as murder and stealing and hatred and gossip. It hurts other people. 
But it's also true that our sins that are committed in the privacy of our own thoughts have an effect upon others. Look back, if you will, to verse 25. Paul reminds us once again, we are members one of another. He uses the illustration of the body in many times to describe the relationship between believers. Well, if for some reason our heart decides that it's got the right to do as it pleases and stops functioning, then the rest of the body is going to know about it and be affected by it very quickly. And if as a member of the body of Christ, I engage or indulge in sin, even if they're secret, and no one else detects them, we damage the body because we're members one of another. My sin... Well, that will have an effect upon my wife and my children because my sin weakens me as a shepherd and as an example. It weakens my influence. So we shouldn't sin because it hurts us and we shouldn't sin because it hurts others. Let me give you a third reason. We shouldn't sin because God says that he will judge those who do not repent. David was troubled with this on many an occasion where he looked around him in the world and saw those who he described as great sinners before God who seemed to get away with their sin. And sometimes we struggle with the thoughts of how can those people who are so undoubtedly godless and sinful seem to prosper? They've got money and power and influence and glamour and adoration from the public. They seem to have everything their hearts desires. But that will change. Because one day they will die and they will stand before God and they will face the punishment of those sins. And the Bible gives us abundant warning that no unrepentant sinner will escape God's judgment. So there's another good reason to turn from sin. It brings about the judgment of God. And I suspect we could probably go on and come up with more reasons why we shouldn't sin. But we haven't really come to the best reason yet. The reason that Paul gives us in verse 30. Paul says the reason that we should not sin is because it grieves the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. We shouldn't sin because it grieves God's Holy Spirit. Let me remind you of the context in which this is said. Paul has been showing us over the last number of verses what it means to live for Christ in a Christless world. And he says we're not to live as the rest of the world lives. We who have been born again and created anew in God, in holiness and truth and righteousness, are to put off the old life of sin, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and to put on the new life in Christ. And this is what we've been looking at over the last number of weeks, what that looks like. We'll stop telling lies and we'll speak the truth. We'll stop being sinfully angry. We'll not steal but rather work hard to give to those in need. We'll not use corrupt communication and words that 
tear people down, but we'll use our words to build them up. Paul's going to go on in verses 31 and 32 to say that as Christians we should put off bitterness and wrath and anger and instead be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving of one another in the same way that God has forgiven you. But right in the middle of these verses that Paul's talking about the changes that should be evident in our lives, he gives us the supreme motivation for why we should not sin. Because it grieves the Holy Spirit who has sealed us for the day of redemption. Now this is really something quite remarkable that Paul's talking about. One of the attributes or the characteristics of God is what we call his immutability. We can think of a number of verses that describe that. I am the Lord, I change not. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as being the same yesterday, today and forever. God does not change. His happiness therefore is not in any way dependent upon his creation. So here's something of a mystery that we can't quite fully understand. That God can be grieved by our sin. If you were with us at the Friday morning meetings over the last few weeks back we were looking at what we called anthropomorphisms that ascribe to God body parts in order to help us understand something about the Lord. So we heard about the eyes of the Lord and the mouth of the Lord and the hands of God and the feet of God. God doesn't have those physical things but they were useful to help us understand something more about the Lord. Well here in verse 30 we have what's known Not as an anthropomorphism, but as an anthropopathism. In other words, they are attributing to God human emotions so that we can better understand who he is. A human emotion, grief. We grieve the Spirit of God. Now what do we mean by that? How do, how, how do we to, to understand that? How can our sins grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, our sins grieve the Holy Spirit because he loves us. This verse is just one amongst many that prove to us that the Holy Spirit is a, a person. Not just an influence or a force in the way that the cults such as Jehovah's Witnesses would say. They deny the Trinity. They say that the Spirit of God is simply a power at work in the world. But notice how Paul refers to him. He describes him as the Holy Spirit of God. He is God's Spirit. And we grieve him with our sin. Now we cannot grieve a force. And we cannot grieve a power. We can only grieve person. And especially if that person loves us. You see, we can tolerate all kinds of remarks and abuse from a stranger because we know that he doesn't love us and perhaps we don't love him. But when someone that we love makes an unkind remark or does something that 
hurts us, it grieves us. And I would suggest that the deeper the love, the deeper the grief when that hurt is caused. This is something that distinguishes Christianity from really every other moral or ethical system. The other religions have ethical standards, but none of them command their followers not to sin because their sin grieves God. Paul's not simply saying do these things because it's the right thing to do. He's, He's not even saying do these things because you'll benefit from them, although you will. He's appealing to us on the basis of our relationship to God, our loving Creator and our Savior, and he's saying your sins grieve Him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into a personal relationship with the triune God. The Spirit of God Himself now dwells within us. Our body is now His temple. And on that basis, Paul exhorts us to glorify God in our bodies and do not grieve His Spirit. Your sin strains that personal relationship that you are expected to enjoy with the loving, indwelling Spirit of God. Now we sometimes talk about the love of God. We talk about it often. And we talk about the love of Jesus. But do we ever think about the love of the Holy Spirit? We know that he's a member of the Godhead. And the Spirit is love because God is love. We often talk about our fellowship with God and our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. But you realize the Bible also talks about the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's a divine person. Not just a force or an energy. And because he loves us and because he desires fellowship with us, our sins grieve him. So Paul's saying, don't just not sin because it's wrong. Don't sin because... It's grieving of God's Holy Spirit. And to sin against love is such a terrible wrong. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit because he loves us. We could also say that our sin grieves the Holy Spirit because he loves others. We've noted this already this morning. Our sin hurts those around us. And because the Spirit of God loves others, our sin grieves Him because of that. Now, again, within the context of this chapter, Paul has been referring to sins that disrupt the unity and the fellowship within the body. Verse 30 begins with the little word, and. It's a connecting verse right back to verse 29 that speaks about corrupt communication that tears others down, whereas gracious speech builds them up. And then he says, and grieve not in the same way. These sins that hurt others hurt the Holy Spirit, and since God loves these other people, his sin gr- your sin grieves. 
I suppose it's a little bit like a father who sees one of his children hurting one of his other children. And he loves them both. And he wants them to get along. And it grieves him to see one hurting another. So the Spirit of God who produces unity within the body of Christ is grieved when we sin against one another because it hurts him. Your sin grieves the Holy Spirit because he loves you. It grieves him because he loves the church. It grieves him because, because he's holy. And do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. If you were to read that sentence in the original Greek, it would read something like this. Do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy One of God. There's an emphasis upon his holiness. God's holiness means that he is absolutely separate to sin and opposed to it. John puts it this way. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, God dwells in light which no man can approach unto. Isaiah, back in chapter 6 of his book, witnessed the angels that surrounded the Lord crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We've almost come to a place today, a misunderstanding that somehow God's grace means that he tolerates and puts up with a certain amount of sin in his children. God doesn't laugh at our sin. He doesn't wink at it and pretend it's not there. He's holy. Which means that all sin, and especially the sin of his children, grieves him. It was because of God's absolute holiness that he sent his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus, down to this world to suffer and die upon a cross to pay the penalty of our sins so that they could be taken away. God grieves over our sins. If he were not holy, he could just have dismissed them out of hand. But his holiness demands that the penalty be paid. Now if our trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we do not need to fear God's future judgment for our sins because that price has been paid by our Savior. But because God is holy and because he loves us, his Holy Spirit is grieved at our sins because he's the Holy Spirit. And if we are to share in his eternal joy, if we are to be those who participate in his holiness, then God must purify us from our sins. And that sin that remains within us grieves the Holy Spirit because it strains our relationship with him. He is the Holy Spirit. There are consequences, of course, to grieving the Spirit of God. 
And it's not because he's trying to spoil our fun. On the contrary, lasting joy is found not in sin but in holiness. Sin promises temporary pleasure but it brings with it long-term pain. Moses understood that. The pleasures of sin are only for a season. Holiness is more difficult in the short term, but it brings long-lasting peace and joy. So what are the consequences if we, we will suffer if we grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to run through these very quickly. If you want a fuller appreciation of them, then I suggest you read Charles Spurgeon's sermon on Grieve Not the Holy Spirit. If you want a copy of that, I can send that your way. But what are some of the consequences of grieving God's Spirit? Number one, we'll suffer his discipline. We'll suffer his discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 makes it very clear that because God is our loving Father, that when we sin against him, he will discipline us so that we might once again share in his holiness. Now that's not to say that there's a direct link between some known sin on our part and the trials that we go through. But let me just say that if you are aware of some sin that you have committed that has led to that trial, then confess it quickly and learn from it and avoid that sin so as not to bring any future chastisement upon you for it. Our sin will bring God's chastisement. Our sin can also cause us to lose sense of the Spirit's presence. Now, since the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God permanently, underline that, permanently dwells within each and every believer. Under the old dispensation in the Old Testament, David had to pray after his sin with Bathsheba, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. But now that the Spirit of God dwells within us permanently, we do not lose his presence, but we lose the sense of his presence. We lose the sense of his presence. And with the loss of the sense of his presence, we lose the sense of his love. It doesn't mean that God has stopped loving you, but you will not experience his love as long as you remain in your sin. After we sin, you know what happens? The devil comes along and tells us, well, God couldn't love you now. Not after what you have done. And how often we're tempted to believe him, that we have committed so grieving a sin that we have lost that sense of his love towards us. Well, the good news is his love is still there and it can be reclaimed. But we have to deal with the sin so we can lose a sense of the Spirit's presence and we can lose a sense of the love of God and we can even lose the joy of our salvation. David, after he repented of the sin, he prayed to the Lord in Psalm 51 and verse 12 that the Lord might restore unto him the joy of his salvation. Not salvation, but the joy of it. You can lose the joy of your salvation. You can lose the assurance of your faith. 
grieving God's Holy Spirit can mean that we will miss out on enjoying the assurance of being born again and of walking with God. We lose the sense of his presence. We lose the sense of his love. We lose the joy that belongs to those who are walking by faith in Christ. We lose those things. There's no one as miserable as a backslidden Christian. Because he has no joy in the things of the world. And he has no joy in the things of God. He's just miserable. We lose sense of God's comfort. And in our sinful, miserable, backslidden condition. We think to ourselves we can't even go to the throne of grace. We can't even pray. Because we have so grieved the Lord. And we lose the assurance of answered prayer. And the words of the psalm come back again to memory. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There's only one prayer that he wants to hear. Prayer of repentance. We can't ask for blessing. We can't ask for help. can't ask for an answer to any other prayer while we're walking in disobedience. But we can pray for repentance. We also lose the ability to bear fruit for God. We miss out on rewards for our service for the Master. If our heart is not in fellowship with God's Holy Spirit, there will be no lasting fruit produced in our life. We'll also miss out on the joy of fellowship with other believers because our sins not only create a distance between us and God, it creates a distance between us and other Christians. So if we're grieving the Spirit through our sin, we don't want to be around godly Christians because their lives and their testimony and their words will convict us of our sin and we'll be most uncomfortable. These are some of the consequences of grieving the Spirit. You miss out on his power. I think of that often. Not just personally but collectively. You know as a, as a church we can grieve God's spirit. We can still have our meetings. We can still come to the services. We can still sing the hymns and read the word and listen and preach the sermon. But if we have so grieved God's spirit... There'll be nothing lasting. There'll be no eternal fruit. There'll be no blessing. There'll be no joy in salvation. There'll be no precious souls being delivered. Not until we deal with the sin and get rid of it and confess it and seek the Lord and a restoration of all of those things that we've missed out on because we've grieved Him. There are terrible consequences. Let me share some consequences also that you will not suffer if you grieve the Spirit. And I think it's important to underline these. We may lose the sense of his presence, but we don't actually lose his presence. We've already mentioned this, but I want to emphasize it again. You can lose the sense of his presence, but the Spirit of God has permanently taken up residence within every Christian. We are sealed by the Spirit. 
We will not lose our salvation if we grieve the Spirit. I've had this conversation quite recently uh, with a lady from another church. She was very concerned that she had blasphemed against the Holy Spirit and had lost her salvation. However, Paul's main point here and the major motivation that he gives us for um, not grieving the Spirit is that he has sealed us unto the day of redemption. The Spirit has been given to us as a seal at the very moment we were saved. And he keeps us until the day of redemption, which is the day of Christ's coming. The day in which Christ claims us as his own. And as you were with us when we were in chapter 1 of Ephesians, you'll remember that we said that the seal was like God's pledge to us, his down payment given to us in the day that we were saved as a promise that when Christ comes that we will be with him. And he redeems us not only from the penalty of our sin, but one day from the presence of our sin. God's Spirit seals us. Now what's the purpose of a seal? First of all, a seal makes something secure. You remember when the Lord Jesus was crucified and they took his body down from the cross and they laid it in the tomb and the stone was rolled across the entranceway and then it was sealed. It was sealed. It was, the seal was placed there to stop anyone from tampering with it. You go to the pharmacy and you get a, some medicine. There'll be a seal on the bottle to assure you that no one has tampered with it. A seal also identifies the owner. Sometimes see it in cattle. They'll maybe have a little tag on their ear. If you watch the old western movies, you'll remember the branding iron that was placed on the hide of the cow in order to identify its owner. That's what a seal does. It marks who owns it. The Spirit's presence shows that we belong to God. A seal also authenticates an object as being genuine. In olden days when the king would write a letter to his people, he would take his ring, his signet ring, and he would press it into the melted wax that had been dropped onto the letter, and he would use his ring as a seal. The king's seal would be on the letter, and the person who received it would know that it was authentic. It's the same practice when we put a seal on a document. God's Spirit is his seal. It makes us secure. It identifies the owner. And we're sealed as being genuinely saved. So when we sin, God will discipline us. Yes, sometimes severely. Because he loves you and he knows that sin will destroy you. But he has promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. And if he has saved you by his grace, he will keep you by that grace. And the admonition is, do not grieve his Holy Spirit, who is that seal that guarantees your salvation until the day of redemption. Because it grieves God. Do not sin against him. Grieve the Spirit of God and your usefulness will cease. Your ministry will bear no fruit. Your Sunday school will be barren. 
your witness to others will bear no converts. The church that grieves the Spirit will fail to be a blessing to the age in which she serves. He will cast no light into the darkness. There will be no souls saved. There will be no additions to our numbers. There will be no young men raised up to go and train and minister in the name of the Lord. May the Lord prevent us from grieving his spirit. May we recognize the folly of grieving the spirit of God and realize that the consequences are not worth it. But may we rather be earnest and zealous and truthful and united and holy and may we keep in the midst of our mind at all times that we have God's Holy Spirit as a heavenly guest within us that we don't want to grieve. So can I offer just some final words should there be any here this morning who feel perhaps that they've missed out on God and have lost sense of his presence and perhaps by sin have grieved the Spirit so that the joy of salvation is no longer yours. And that you're in a state of coldness and backsliding. Can I just say, don't stay there. Don't delay. Don't wait a moment longer in such a a, a terrible condition. Don't be content for another second for the Spirit of God to be absent from your life and from your experience. I encourage you by every lawful scriptural means to repent of that sin and to seek God that you might enjoy the nearness and the fellowship of His presence and the assurance of His love and His gracious help as you minister and the fruitfulness that He brings. Search out that sin that has grieved the Spirit and give it up and repent with tears if necessary. And continue in prayer and do not rest satisfied until you are assured that God's Spirit has come back to you again. So attend to the preaching of God's Word. Be in the company of godly Christians. But above everything else, let your cry unto God be, Return, O Holy Spirit, return. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. Yield to him. Do not grieve him. Do not resist him. Do not turn from him. Run to him. And enjoy the peace and the rest and the joy of walking in fellowship with God. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption. May the Lord help us to seek him earnestly, to repent of the sins that have broken fellowship with him, and to seek that cleansing, that restoration, 
that comes from being in fellowship with the Spirit. May God help us. Amen. Amen.